Productions present Charles Dickens, A Christmas Carol. whatever about that. The register of his burial was signed by the clergyman, the clerk, the undertaker and the chief mourner. And Scrooge knew he was dead. Scrooge and he were partners for many years. Scrooge was his sole executor, his sole administrator, his sole friend and sole mourner. So there is no doubt that Marley was as dead as a doornail. This must be distinctly understood, or nothing wonderful can come of the story I am going to relate. He was a tight-fisted hand at the grindstone, Scrooge. A squeezing, wrenching, grasping, scraping, clutching, covetous old sinner. Hard and sharp as flint, secret and self-contained, and solitary as an oyster. The cold within him froze his old features, stiffened his gait, and spoke out shrewdly in his grating voice. Once upon a time, on Christmas Eve, old Scrooge sat busy in his counting house. It was cold, bleak, biting weather, foggy withal. The city clocks had only just gone three but it was quite dark already. The door of Scrooge's counting-house was open that he might keep his eye upon his clerk, who in a dismal little cell beyond was copying letters. A Merry Christmas, Uncle. God save you. Bah, humbug. Christmas a humbug, Uncle? You don't mean that, I'm sure. I do. Merry Christmas. What right have you to be merry? What reason have you to be merry? You're poor enough. Come then. What right have you to be dismal? What reason have you to be morose? You're rich enough. Don't be cross, Uncle. What else could I be when I live in such a world of fools as this? Merry Christmas. Out upon Merry Christmas. If I could work my will, every idiot who goes about with Merry Christmas on his lips should be boiled with his own pudding and buried with a stake of holly through his heart. Uncle. Nephew, keep Christmas in your own way and let me keep it in mine. Keep it? But you don't keep it. Let me leave it alone, then. Much good may it do you. Much good it has ever done you. There are many things from which I might have derived good, by which I have not profited, I dare say. Christmas among the rest. But I am sure 
I have always thought of Christmas time as a kind, forgiving, charitable, pleasant time. And therefore, Uncle, though it has never put a scrap of gold or silver in my pocket, I believe it has done me good and will do me good. And I say, God bless it. Here, here, Cratchit. Let me hear another sound from you and you'll keep your Christmas by losing your situation. You're quite a powerful speaker, nephew. I wonder you don't go into Parliament. Don't be angry, Uncle. Come, dine with us tomorrow. I shall do no such thing, nephew. Now, good afternoon. Come, Uncle. You and Abigail have not seen one another since well before. Why did you get married? Because I fell in love. Because you fell in love? That is the only one thing in the world more ridiculous than a Merry Christmas. Nay, Uncle, but you never came to see me before that happened. Why give it as a reason for not coming now? I want nothing from you. I ask nothing of you. Why cannot we be friends? Good afternoon. I am sorry, with all my heart, to find you so resolute. I have made the trial in homage to Christmas, and I'll keep my Christmas humour to the last. So a Merry Christmas, Uncle. And a Happy New Year. Bah, humbug. A Merry Christmas to you, Bob, and to your family. And a Merry Christmas to you too, Fred. There's another one. It's my clerk. Fifteen shillings a week and a wife and family talking about a Merry Christmas. I'll retire to Bedlam. Oh, for heaven. What now? Scrooge and Marley's, I believe. Have I the pleasure of addressing Mr Scrooge or Mr Marley? Mr. Marley has been dead seven years. He died seven years ago, this very night. I have no doubt his liberality is well represented by his surviving partner. It certainly is. We were kindred spirits. In what way can I help you, sir? At this festive season of the year, Mr. Scrooge, it is more than usually desirable that we should make some slight provision for the poor and destitute, who suffer greatly at the present time. Many thousands are in want of common necessities. Hundreds and thousands are in want of common comfort, sir. Are there no prisons? Plenty of prisons. And the Union workhouses, are they still in operation? They are. Still, I wish I could say they were not. The treadmill and the poor law are in full vigour, then? Both very busy, sir. Oh, I was afraid, from what you said at first, that something had occurred to stop them in their useful course. I'm very glad to hear it. Under the impression that they scarcely furnish Christian cheer of mind or body... To the multitude, a few of us are endeavouring to raise a fund to buy the poor some meat and drink and means of warmth. What shall I put you down for? Nothing. You wish to be anonymous? I wish to be left alone. Since you ask what I wish, sir, that is my answer. I don't make myself merry at Christmas, and I can't afford to make idle people merry. I help to support the establishments I have mentioned. They cost enough. And those who are badly off must go there. Many can't go there. And many would rather die. If they would rather die, they had better do it and decrease the surplus population. It's not my business. It's enough for a man to understand his own business and not to interfere with other people's. Good afternoon, sir. Hmm. Good afternoon, sir. Meanwhile the fog and darkness thickened. At length the hour of shutting up the counting-house arrived. With an ill will Scrooge dismounted from his stool and tacitly admitted the fact to his expectant clerk, 
who instantly snuffed his candle out and put on his hat. Uh, you'll want all day tomorrow, I suppose. If it's quite convenient, sir. It is not convenient. If I were to stop half a crown for it, you'd think yourself ill-used, I'll be bound. And yet you don't think me ill-used when I pay a day's wages for no work. It is only once a year, sir. Poor excuse for picking a man's pocket every 25th of December. I suppose you must have the whole day. Be here all the earlier the next morning. I, I will, sir. Thank you, Mr. Scrooge. Scrooge took his melancholy dinner in his usual melancholy tavern, and having read all the newspapers, went home to bed. He lived in chambers which had once belonged to his deceased partner. They were a gloomy suite of rooms in a lowering pile of building. Nobody lived in it but Scrooge. The yard was so dark that even Scrooge, who knew its every stone, was fain to grope with his hands. The fog and frost hung about the black old gateway of the house. It is a fact that there was nothing at all particular about the knocker on the door, except that it was very large. It is also a fact that Scrooge had seen it night and morning during his whole residence. Also that Scrooge had little of what is called fancy about him. Let it also be said that Scrooge had not bestowed one thought on Marley since his mention of his partner that afternoon. Then let any man explain to me, if he can, how it happened that Scrooge, having his key in the lock of the door, saw in the knocker, without its undergoing any intermediate process of change, not a knocker, but... Marley? It was not an impenetrable shadow, but had a dismal light about it. It was not angry or ferocious, but looked at Scrooge as Marley used to look, with ghostly spectacles turned up on its ghostly forehead. The hair was curiously stirred as if by breath or hot air, and, though the eyes were wide open, they were perfectly motionless. That, and its livid colour, made it horrible. As Scrooge looked fixedly at this phenomenon, it was merely a door-knocker. Not Marley. To say that he was not startled would be untrue. But he put his hand upon the key he had relinquished, turned it sturdily, walked in and lighted his candle. He did pause, with a moment's irresolution, before he shut the door, and looked cautiously behind it first. There was nothing on the back of the door. Thus secured against surprise, he took off his cravat put on his dressing gown and slippers and his nightcap, and sat down before the fire to take his gruel. It was a very low fire indeed, nothing on such a bitter night. He was obliged to sit close to it and brood over it before he could extract the least sensation of warmth. As he threw his head back in the chair, his glance happened to rest upon a disused bell that hung in the room. It was with great astonishment and with a strange, inexplicable dread that as he looked, he saw this bell begin to swing. Soon it rang loudly and so did every other bell in the house. This might have lasted half a minute or a minute, but it seemed an hour. The bell ceased as they had begun together. They were succeeded by a clanking noise deep down below, 
as if some person were dragging a heavy chain over the cellar floor. The cellar door flew open with a booming sound, and then he heard the noise much louder on the floors below, then coming up the stairs, then coming straight towards his door. It's humbug still, I would believe. His colour changed, though, when, without a pause, it came on through the heavy door and passed into the room before his eyes. Marley's ghost. Marley's ghost. The same face, the very same. Marley in his usual waistcoat, tights and boots. The chain he drew was clasped about his middle. It was long and wound about him like a tail, and it was made of cash boxes, keys, padlocks, ledgers, deeds and heavy purses wrought in steel. His body was transparent, so that Scrooge, observing him and looking through his waistcoat, could see the two buttons on his coat behind. Scrooge looked the phantom through and through, and saw it standing before him. He felt the chilling influence of its death-cold eyes, yet he was still incredulous and fought against his senses. How now? What do you want with me? Much. Who are you? Ask me who I was. Who were you then? You're particular for a shade. In life I was your partner, Jacob Marley. Can you, can you sit down? I can. Do it then. You don't believe in me. I don't. Why do you doubt your senses? Because a little thing affects them. A slight disorder of the stomach makes them cheat. You may be an undigested bit of beef. A blot of mustard, a crumb of cheese, a fragment of an undone potato. <laughs> There's more of gravy than of grape about you, whatever you are. Humbug, I tell you. <laughs> Mercy! Evil apparition, why do you trouble me? Man of the worldly mind, do you believe in me or not? I do, I must. But why do spirits walk the earth, and why do they come to me? It is required of every man that the spirit within him should walk abroad among his fellow men. If that spirit goes not forth in life, it is condemned to do so after death. It is doomed to wander through the earth and witness what it cannot share, but might have shared on earth and turned to happiness. Your fetters, tell me why. I wear the chain I forged in life. I made it link by link and yard by yard. I girded it on of my own free will and of my own free will I wore it. Is it patterned strange to you? Or would you know the weight and length of the strong call you bear yourself? It was full as heavy and as long as this seven Christmas Eve ago. You have laboured on it since. Oh, Jacob Marley, speak comfort to me. I have none to give. I cannot rest, I cannot stay, I cannot linger anywhere. In life my spirit never roved beyond the narrow limits of our money-changing hole and weary journeys lie before me. You must have been very slow about it, Jacob. Seven years dead and travelling all the time. The whole time. No rest, no peace, incessant torture of remorse. You might have gotten over a great quantity of ground in seven years. <laughs> Found a double iron, not to know that no space of regret can make amends for one's life's opportunities misused. Yet such I was. Oh, such I was. But you were always a good man of business, Jacob. Business? Mankind was my business. The common welfare was my business. Charity, mercy, 
The barons and benevolence were all my business. The dealings of my trade were but a drop of water in the comprehensive ocean of my business. At this time of the rolling year I suffer most. Why did I walk through the crowds of fellow beads and my eyes turned down and never raised them to that blessed star? Hear me. My time is nearly gone. I will, but don't be hard upon me, Jacob. Pray. I am here to warn you. You have yet a chance and hope of escaping my fate. You were always a good friend to me. Thank you. You will be haunted by three spirits. Is that the chance and hope you mentioned, Jacob? It is. I I think I'd rather not. Without their visit, you can't hope to shut the path, my friend. Expect the first tomorrow, when the bell tolls one. Couldn't I take them all at once and have it over, Jacob? Expect the second on the same night of the next the third, when the last stroke of three has ceased to vibrate. Look to see me no more, and look that for your own sake you remember what has passed between us. The apparition walked backward from him, and at every step it took, the window raised itself a little, so that when the spectre reached it, it was wide open. Marley floated out upon the bleak, dark night. Scrooge closed the window and examined the door by which the ghost had entered. It was locked as he had locked it with his own hands, and the bolts were undisturbed. And being from the emotion he had undergone, or the fatigues of the day, or the dull conversation of the ghost, or the lateness of the hour much in need of repose, Scrooge went straight to bed, without undressing, and fell asleep upon the instant. <coughs> when Scrooge awoke, it was so dark that looking out of bed, he could scarcely distinguish the transparent window from the opaque walls of his chamber. He was endeavouring to pierce the darkness when the chimes of a neighbouring church struck. He listened for the hour. Twelve? It was past two when I went to bed. It isn't possible that I could have slept through a whole day and far into another night. Still foggy, still cold, no people running about. Scrooge thought it over and over and over and could make nothing of it. He lay in this state until the chime had rung three quarters, when he remembered that the ghost had warned him. You will be haunted by three spirits. Expect the first ghost when the bell tolls one. Quarter past. Half past. Quarter to it. The hour itself. Light flashed up in the room upon the instant. Scrooge, starting up into a half-recumbent attitude, found himself face to face with the unearthly visitor who drew them. It was a strange figure, like a child, 
yet not so like a child as like an old man viewed through some supernatural medium, which gave him the appearance of having receded from the view and being diminished to a child's proportions. Its hair, which hung about its neck and down its back, was white as if with age, and yet the face had not a wrinkle in it, and the tenderest bloom was on the skin. Are you the spirit whose coming was foretold to me? I am. I am the ghost of Christmas past. Long past? No, your past. What business brings you here, spirit? Your welfare. I am obliged, but I think a night of unbroken rest would have better served me to that end. Your reclamation, then. Take heed, rise, and walk with me. Spirit, the weather and the hour are not suitable for pedestrian purposes. I'm clad but lightly in slippers, dressing down a nightcap, and I believe that I have a cold upon me. No! No, I can't go through the window, spirit. I'm a mortal and liable to fall. Bear but a touch of my hand, and you shall be upheld. As the words were spoken, they passed through the wall and stood upon an open country road with fields on either hand. The city had entirely vanished. The darkness and the mist had vanished with it, for it was a clear, cold winter day with snow upon the ground. Good heaven! I was a boy here. Spirit, leave me where you would. They walked along the road, Scrooge recognising every gate and post and tree. They left the high road by a well-remembered lane and soon approached a mansion of dull red brick. A large house, but one of broken fortunes. The walls were damp and mossy, the windows broken, the gates decayed. Entering the dreary hall and glancing through the open doors of many rooms, they found them poorly furnished, cold and vast. The school is not quite deserted. A solitary neglected child is left there still. I know it. <laughs> Scrooge and the ghost went across the hall to a door at the back of the house. It opened before them and disclosed a long, bare, melancholy room made barer still by lines of plain, empty desks. At one of these a lonely boy was reading near a feeble fire and Scrooge sat down upon a form and wept to see his poor forgotten <laughs> self as he used to be. Let us see another Christmas. Scrooge's former self grew larger and the room became a little darker. The panels shrunk, the windows cracked, fragments of plaster fell out of the ceiling. Scrooge knew that it was correct. Everything had happened so. There he was, alone, when all the other boys had gone home for the holidays. He was not reading now, but walking despairingly. Scrooge looked at the ghost and, with a mournful shaking of his head, glanced towards the door. It opened, and a little girl, much younger than the boy, came darting in, putting her arms about his neck. His sister, Fan, had come to bring him home for good. Your sister was always a delicate creature whom a breath might have withered, but she had a large heart. So she had. You're right, I'll not gainsay it, spirit, God forbid. She died a woman, and had children. One child. 
Your nephew? Yes. They were now in the busy thoroughfare of the city. With shadowy passengers passed, carts and coaches battle for the way, and all the strife and tumult of a real city world. Here too it was Christmas time. It was evening, and the streets were lighted up. Do you know this place, Ebenezer? Know it? I was apprentice. Why, it's old Fezziwig. Bless his heart, it's Fezziwig alive again. <laughs> Ho there, Ebenezer! No more work tonight! Christmas Eve! Christmas! Let's have the shutters up. Before a man can say Jack Robinson. Yes, that's it. Well done. Clear away, my lads. And let's have lots of room here. The floor was swept, the lamps were trimmed, fuel was heaped upon the fire, and the warehouse was as snug and warm and bright a ballroom as you would desire to see upon a winter's night. There were dances and forfeits and more dances. There was cake and a great piece of cold roast and mince pies and plenty of beer. When the clock struck eleven, this domestic ball broke up. Mr and Mrs Fezziwig shook hands with every person as he or she went out and wished them a Merry Christmas. A small matter to make these silly folks so full of gratitude. Small? Why, is it not? He has spent but a few pounds of your mortal money. Three or four, perhaps. Is that so much that he deserves this praise? It isn't that, Spirit. He has the power to render us happy or unhappy, to make our service light or burdensome. Say that his power lies in words and looks, in things so slight and insignificant that it is impossible to add and count them up. What then? The happiness he gives is quite as great as if it cost a fortune. What is the matter? Nothing particular. No, I, I should like to be able to say a word or two to my clerk just now, that's all. My time grows short. Quick! Again Scrooge saw himself. He was older now, a man in the prime of life. His face had not the harsh, rigid lines of later years, but it had begun to wear the signs of care and avarice. There was an eager, greedy, restless motion in the eye. The passion had taken root. He was not alone, but sat by the side of a young girl in a morning dress, in whose eyes there were tears. It matters very little to you, Ebenezer. Another idol has displaced me, and if it can cheer and comfort you in time to come, I have no cause to grieve. What idol has displaced you, Belle? A golden one. This is the even-handed dealing of the world. There is nothing on which it is so hard as poverty, and there is nothing it professes to condemn with such severity as the pursuit of wealth. You fear the world too much. All your other hopes have merged into the hope of being beyond the chance of his sordid reproach. I have seen your nobler aspirations fall off, one by one, 
until gain engrosses you. Have I not? Even if I have grown wiser, then what then? I'm not changed towards you, am I? Our contract is an old one. It was made when we were both poor and content to be so, until we could improve our worldly fortune. You are changed. When it was made, you were another man. I was a boy. You were not what you are, I am. That which promised happiness when we were one in heart is fraught with misery now that we are two. How often have I thought this? I will not say. It is enough that I have thought of it. Have I ever sought release? In words? No. Never. In what then? In a changed nature. An altered spirit. In everything that made my love of any worth or value in your sight. If this had never been between us, tell me. Would you seek me out and try to win me now? No. You think not? I would gladly think otherwise if I could. Heaven knows. When I have learned a truth like this, I know how strong it must be. But if you were free today, tomorrow, yesterday, can I believe that you would choose a dowerless girl? I release you with a full heart for the love of him you once were. May you be happy in the life that you have chosen. Show me no more. Conduct me home. Why do you delight in torturing me? I told you these were shadows of the things that have been. But they are what they are. Do not blame me. I cannot bear it. Leave me. Take me back. Haunt me no longer. Scrooge was conscious of being exhausted. And, further, of being in his own bedroom. He'd barely time to reel to bed before he sank into a heavy sleep. <coughs> when the bell struck one and no shape appeared, Scrooge was taken with a violent fit of trembling. Five minutes. Ten minutes, a quarter of an hour went by, yet nothing came. All this time he lay upon his bed, and the very centre of a blaze of ruddy light streamed upon it when the clock proclaimed the hour. At last he began to think that the source of this ghostly light might be in the adjoining room. Ebenezer Scrooge, enter! Come in! It was his own room. There was no doubt about that. But it had undergone a surprising transformation. The walls and ceiling were so hung with living green that it looked a perfect grove. From every part of which bright gleaming berries glistened. The crisp leaves of holly, mistletoe and ivy reflected back the light. Heaped upon the floor to form a kind of throne were turkeys, great 
joints of meat, mince pies, plum puddings, red-hot chestnuts, immense twelfth cakes, and seething bowls of punch that made the chamber dim with their delicious steam. Upon this couch there sat a jolly giant who bore a glowing torch and held it up high to shed its light on Scrooge as he came peeping round the door. Come in and know me better, man. I am the ghost of Christmas presents. It was clothed in a simple green robe bordered with white fur. Its feet were bare and on its head it wore no other covering than a holly wreath. Its dark brown curls were long and free as free as its genial face, its cheery voice, its joyful air. You have never seen the like of me before. Never. Spirit, conduct me where you will. I went forth last night on compulsion, and I learnt a lesson which is working now. Tonight, if you have anything to teach me, let me profit by it. Hang on to my robe. Scrooge did as he was told and held it fast. They stood in the city streets on Christmas morning. The poulterers' shops were still half open, and the fruiterers were radiant in their glory. But soon the steeples called good people all to church and chapel, and away they came, flocking through the streets in their best clothes and with their gayest faces. They went on, invisible as they had before, into the suburbs of the town. On the threshold of a certain door, the spirit smiled and stopped to bless the household. Bob Cratchit's house. Up rose Mrs. Cratchit and she laid the cloth, assisted by Belinda Cratchit, youngest of her daughters. While Master Peter Cratchit plunged a fork into the saucepan of potatoes. Where has your precious father got to? And your brother, Tiny Tim. There's father now. In came Bob, the father, his threadbare clothes darned up and brushed to look seasonable, and Tiny Tim upon his shoulder. Tiny Tim bore a little crutch and had his limbs supported by an iron frame. Hi-ho, everyone. Hello, my love. Come with me, Tim. You can hear the pudding in the copper. It's singing. And how did little Tim behave? <laughs> as good as gold. He told me, coming home, that he hoped people saw him in church, and it might be pleasant for them to remember upon Christmas Day who made lame beggars walk and blind men see. I think he's grown stronger. Robert, can you fetch the goose? Yes, my dear. Belinda, won't you sweeten the apple sauce? Would you be a dear and set the chairs? Yes, mother. Thank you. Peter, have you finished mashing the potatoes? Almost, Mother. Here's the goose. At last the dishes were set on and grace was sent. When dinner was done, Mrs Cratchit entered with the pudding like a speckled cannonball, blazing in half of half a quart of ignited brandy with Christmas holly stuck into the top. After pudding, all the Cratchit family drew round the hearth Bob served a hot concoction of gin and lemons, while the chestnuts on the fires sputtered and crackled noisily. A Merry Christmas to us all, my dears. God bless us. God bless us. 
everyone. <coughs> Spirit, tell me if Tiny Tim will live. I see a vacant seat in the poor chimney corner and a crutch without an owner, carefully preserved. If these shadows remain unaltered, the child will die. No, no, oh no, kind spirit, say he will be spared. If these shadows remain unaltered by the future, None other of my race will find him here. What then? If he's going to die, he'd better do it and decrease the surplus population. Forbear such wicked thoughts until you've discovered what the surplus is and where it is. Will you decide what men shall live? What men shall die? It may be that in the sight of heaven, you are less fit to live than this poor man's child. I give you Mr. Scrooge, the founder of the feast. <laughs> the founder of the feast indeed. I wish I had him here. I'd give him a piece of my mind to feast upon, and I hope he'd have a good appetite for it. My dear, the children, Christmas Day. It should be Christmas Day, I'm sure, on which one drinks to the health of such an odious, dingy, hard, unfeeling man as Mr Scrooge. You know he is, Robert. My dear, Christmas Day. Well, I'll drink for his health, for your sake. And the days, not for his. Long life to him. A Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. He'll be very merry and very happy, I have no doubt. To Mr. Scrooge. To Mr. Scrooge. To Mr. Scrooge, the founder of the feast. <coughs> now then, Peter, I have been told of apprentice position at the shipping offices which needs to be filled. I've put in a word for you. If it comes to pass, you'd be on five and sixpence weekly. Five and sixpence? <laughs> Peter's going to be a man of business. There was nothing of high mark in this. They were not well dressed. Their shoes were far from being waterproof. But they were happy, grateful and contented with the time. And when they faded, Scrooge had his eye upon them, and especially on Tiny Tim, until the last. By this time it was getting dark and snowing pretty heavily. And as Scrooge and the spirit went along the streets, the brightness of the roaring fires in kitchens, parlours and all sorts of rooms was wonderful. It was a great surprise to Scrooge to suddenly hear a hearty laugh. It was a much greater surprise to him to recognise it as his own nephew's, and to find himself in a bright room with a spirit standing smiling by his side, looking at that same nephew. <laughs> he said that Christmas was a humbug, as I live. 
He believed it too. <laughs> More shame for him, Fred. He's a comical old fellow. Not as pleasant as he might be. However, his offences carry their own punishment, and I have nothing to say against him. I'm sure he is very rich, Fred. At least you always tell me so. What of that, my dear? His wealth is of no use to him. He doesn't do any good with it. Doesn't make himself comfortable with it. I have no patience with him. I have. I am sorry for him. I couldn't be angry with him if I tried. Who suffers by his ill whims? Himself. He takes it in his head to dislike us and won't come and dine with us. What's the consequence? He loses some pleasant moments which could do him no harm. I mean to give him the same chance every year, whether he likes it or not. He may rail at Christmas till he dies, but he can't help thinking better of it if he finds me going there in good temper year after year and saying, Uncle Scrooge, how are you? After tea, they had some music, and after a while they played at forfeits. For it is good to be children sometimes, and never better than at Christmas. They played a game called Yes and No, where Scrooge's nephew had to think of something, and the rest must find out what. He only answering to their questions yes or no. Is it uh, a horse? No. A pig? Certainly not. I have found it out. I know what it is, Fred. An animal that grows, grunts and talks sometimes and which lives in London. It's your Uncle Scrooge. It is. <laughs> he has given us plenty of merriment and it would be ungrateful not to drink to his health. A Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year to the old man. He wouldn't take it from me but he may have it. Uncle Scrooge! Uncle, Uncle Scrooge. Scrooge! Scrooge and the spirit were again upon their travels. Much they saw, far they went, and many homes they visited, but always with a happy end. It was strange that, while Scrooge remained unaltered in his outward form, the ghost grew clearly older. Scrooge observed this change when, looking at the spirit as they stood together, he noticed that its hair was grey. Are spirits' lives so short? My life upon this globe is very brief. It ends tonight at midnight. The chimes were ringing at three quarters past eleven at that moment. As the bell struck twelve, Scrooge looked about him for the ghost and saw it not. As the last stroke ceased, he remembered the prediction of old Jacob Marley. You will be haunted by three spirits. Lifting up his eyes, he beheld a solemn phantom, draped and hooded, coming like a mist along the ground towards him.
the phantom slowly, gravely, silently approached. It was shrouded in a deep black garment, which concealed its form and left nothing of it visible save one outstretched hand. It was tall and stately, and its mysterious presence filled Scrooge with a solemn dread. He knew no more, for the spirit neither spoke nor moved. I am in the presence of the ghost of Christmas yet to come. You're about to show me shadows of the things that have not happened but will happen. Is that so, spirit? The upper portion of the garment was contracted for an instant in its folds, as if the spirit had inclined its head. That was the only answer he received. I fear you more than any spectre I have seen, but I know your purpose is to do me good, and I am prepared to bear you company. Will you not speak to me? It gave him no reply. The hand was pointed straight before them. Night is waning fast, and it is precious time to me. Lead on, spirit. Scrooge followed in the phantom shadow. They scarcely seemed to enter the city, for the city rather seemed to spring up about them. But there they were, in the heart of it. The spirit stopped beside one little knot of businessmen. Uh, no, I don't know much about it. Either way, I only know he's dead. When did he die? Last night, I believe. Why, what was the matter with him? God knows. <laughs> I thought he'd never die. And what has he done with his money? I haven't heard. Left it to his company, perhaps. <laughs> he hasn't left it to me. <laughs> <laughs> it's likely to be a cheap funeral. For upon my life, I can't think of anyone to go to it. Suppose we make up a party and volunteer. I don't mind going, if lunch is provided. <laughs> <laughs> Scrooge knew the men and looked towards the spirit for an explanation. Quiet and dark beside him stood the phantom with its outstretched hand. Scrooge fancied that the unseen eyes were looking at him keenly. It made him shudder. They left the busy scene and went into an obscure part of the town where Scrooge had never been before. The ways were foul and narrow, the shops and houses wretched, the whole quarter reeked with crime, filth and misery. Far in this den of infamous resort, there was a low-browed shop where iron, old rags, bottles and bones were bought. Upon the floor were piled up heaps of rusty keys, chains, and iron of all kinds. Sitting among the ways by a charcoal stove made of old bricks was a grey-haired rascal who sat smoking a pipe. Scrooge and the Phantom came into the presence of this man, just as a woman with a heavy bundle slunk into the shop. She had scarcely entered when another woman, similarly laden, came in too. Let the charwoman alone to be the first, and the laundress to be the second. Look here, Joe. Here's a chance. You couldn't have met in a better place. Come into the parlour. What odds, eh, Mrs Dilber? Every person has a right to take care of themselves. He always did. True indeed. No man more so. Who's the worst for the loss of a few things like these? Not a dead man. No, indeed. If he wanted to keep him after he was dead, why wasn't he natural in his lifetime? If he had been, he'd have had someone to look after him when he was struck with death. 
instead of lying alone, gasping out his last. It's the truest word that was ever spoke. It's a judgment on him. Open that bundle, Joe, and let me know the value of it. I'm not afraid for her to see it. We know pretty well that we were helping ourselves before we met here. It's no sin. I'll come to you in a moment, my good woman. Mrs. Dibbler, what do you have for me today? Sheets and towels. Little wearing apparel. Two old-fashioned silver teaspoons. Pair of sugar tongs. Hmm. As it's you, my dear, I can see it clear to five shillings and sixpence. I always give too much to ladies. It's a weakness of mine. That's the way I ruin myself. Five and six? Is that all, Joe? I know there's not much, but... That's your account. If you asked me for another penny and made it an open question, I'd repent of being so liberal and knock off half a crown. Now look at my bundle, Joe. What do you call this? Ah, bed curtains. Oh, you don't mean to say you tuck them down rings and all with him lying there? Yes, I do. Why not? You were born to make your fortune and you'll certainly do it. I shan't hold my hand when I can get anything in it by reaching it out. For the sake of such a man as him. Don't drop that oil upon the blankets now. His blankets? Whose else's, do you think? He isn't likely to take cold without them, I dare say. I hope he didn't die of anything catching. Eh? Don't you be afraid of that. He ain't so fond of his company that I'd loitered about him for such things. If he did. Ah, uh, you may look through that shirt till your eyes ache. You won't find a hole in it. It's the best he had. A fine one, too. He'd have wasted it if it hadn't been for me. But what do you call wasting it? <laughs> Pulling it on in to be buried in. If Calco ain't good enough for such a purpose, it isn't good enough for anything. It's as becoming to the body. He can't look uglier than he did in that one. Spirit, I see, I see. The case of this unhappy man might be my own. My life tends that way now. Merciful heaven, what is this? The scene had changed, and now Scrooge almost touched a bare, uncurtained bed on which, beneath a ragged sheet, there lay something covered up. A pale light fell upon the bed, and on it, plundered and bereft, unwatched, unwept, uncared for, was the body of a man. He lay alone in that dark, empty house. This is a fearful place. In leaving it, I shall not leave its lesson. Let us go. Let me see some tenderness connected with the death. Well, this dark chamber will be forever present to me. The ghost conducted him through several streets familiar to his feet. And as they went along, Scrooge looked here and there to find himself, but nowhere was he to be seen. They entered poor Bob Cratchit's house and found the mother and the children seated round the fire. The mother and her daughter were engaged in sewing. The mother laid up her work upon the table and put her hand up to her face. The colour hurts my eyes. Oh, it makes them weak by candlelight. And I wouldn't show weak eyes to your father when he comes home. Not for the world. It must be near his time. I think he has walked slower than he used to. These few last evenings, Mother. I have known him. I... I had known him. Walk, 
with Tiny Tim upon his shoulder very fast indeed. So have I. But he was very light to carry, and his father loved him so that it would be no trouble. No trouble. Hi-ho, everyone. Good Good evening, evening, Father. Father. My goodness, you've done so much work on the embroidery. You'll be done long before Sunday. You went today then, Robert? Yes, my dear. I wish you could have gone. It would have done you good to see how green a place it is. But you'll see it often. I promised him that I would walk there on a Sunday. I must tell you of the extraordinary kindness of Mr. Scrooge's nephew. I met him in the street earlier today. He said I looked a little down and asked what had happened to distress me. He is the pleasantest spoken gentleman you ever heard. So I told him. I am heartily sorry for it, Mr. Cratchit, and heartily sorry for your good wife. If I can be of service to you in any way, that's where I live. Pray, come to me. And he gave me his card. Now, it wasn't for the sake of anything he might be able to do for us so much as for his kind way that this was quite delightful. It really seemed as if he had known our tiny Tim and felt with us. I'm sure he's a good soul. You would be sure of it, my dear, if you saw and spoke to him. I am sure none of us shall forget Tiny Tim, or this first parting that there were among us. Never, Father. And I know that when we recollect how patient and how mild he was, we should not quarrel easily among ourselves and forget poor Tiny Tim in doing it. No, never. Father. Spectre, something informs me that our parting moment is at hand. I know it, but I know not how. Tell me, what man that was whom we saw lying dead? The ghost of Christmas yet to come and conveyed him into the resort of businessmen, but showed him not himself. The spirit did not stay for anything, but went straight on as to the end, until besought by Scrooge to tarry for a moment. This court is where my place of occupation is, and has been for a length of time. Let me behold what I shall be in days to come. The house is yonder. Why do you point away? Scrooge hastened to the window of his office and looked in. It was an office still, but not his. The furniture was not the same, and the figure in the chair was not himself. The phantom pointed as before. He joined it once again and wondering whither he had gone, accompanied it until they reached an iron gate. He paused to look around before entering. A churchyard. Here then the wretched man whose name he had now to learn lay underneath the ground. The spirit stood among the graves and pointed down to one. Scrooge advanced towards it. Before I draw nearer, answer me one question. Are these the shadows of the things that will be? Or are they shadows of the things that may be only? Men's courses will foreshadow certain ends to which they must lead, but if the courses be departed from, the ends will change. Say it is thus. The spirit was immovable as ever. Scrooge crept towards it, trembling as he went, and following the finger, read upon the stone of the neglected grave the name Ebenezer Scrooge. Am I that man who lay upon the bed? No, spirit, oh no, no, hear me! 
I am not the man I was. Show me this if I am past all hope. Good spirit, assure me that I may change these shadows you've shown me. I will honour Christmas in my heart and try to keep it all the year. I will not shut out the lessons that the three spirits have taught. Oh, tell me I may sponge away the writing on this stone. If they would rather die, they had better do it. Population. In his agony he called the spectral hand. It sought to free itself, but he was strong in his entreaty and detained it. The spirit, stronger yet, repulsed him. Holding up his hands in a last prayer to have his fate reversed, he saw an alteration in the phantom's hood and dress. It shrunk, collapsed, and dwindled down into a bedpost. Yes, and the bedpost was his own. The bed was his own, the room was his own. Best and happiest of all, the time before him was his own to make amends in. Oh, Jacob Marley, heaven and the Christmas time be praised for this. Curtains are not torn down. They're here. I am here. The shadows of the things that would have been may be dispelled. I know they will be. <laughs> I don't know what to do. I'm as light as a feather, as happy as an angel, as merry as a schoolboy. A merry Christmas to everybody. There's the door by which the ghost of Marley entered. There's the corner where the ghost of Christmas Present sat. It's all true. It all happened. Running to the window, Scrooge opened and put out his hand. No fog, no mist. Clear, bright, jovial, golden sunlight. Heavenly sky, sweet, fresh air. Oh, glorious. He called down to a boy in Sunday clothes. What's today, my fine fellow? Today? Why? Christmas Day. It's Christmas Day. I haven't missed it. The spirits have done it all in one night. They can do anything they like. Of course they can. My fine fellow, do you know the poulterers in the next street but one? I should hope I did. An intelligent boy. A remarkable boy. Do you know whether they sold the prize turkey that was hanging up there? Not the little prize turkey, the big one? What? The one as big as me? Yes, my boy. It's hanging in there now. Is it? Go and buy it. Eh? No, I'm in earnest. Go and buy it and tell them to bring it here, that I may give them direction where to take it. Come back with the man, I'll give you a shilling. Come back with him in less than five minutes, I'll give you half a crown. I'll send it to Bob Cratchit. <laughs> I shan't know who sends it. He wrote the address and went downstairs to open the door, ready for the coming of the poulterer's man. The turkey, when it arrived, was huge. Why, it's impossible to carry that to Camden Town. You must have a cab. He dressed himself all in his best and got out into the streets. The people were by this time pouring forth. Scrooge regarded everyone with a delighted smile. He had not gone far when he beheld the gentleman who had walked into his counting house the day before. My dear sir, how do you do? A Merry Christmas to you, sir. Mr. Scrooge? Yes, that is my name and I fear it may not be pleasant to you. Allow me to ask your pardon and will you have the goodness... Lord, bless me, my dear Mr. Scrooge, are you serious? If you please, not a farthing less. A great many back payments are included in it, I assure you. Will you do me that favour? Oh, my dear sir, I don't know what to say to such. Don't say anything, please. Will you come and see me? I will. Thank you. I am much obliged to you. Bless you. He went to church and walked about the streets and watched the people hurrying to and fro. He had never dreamed that any war could give him so much happiness. In the afternoon he turned his step towards his nephew's house. 
He passed the door a dozen times before he had the courage to go up and knock. Fred's young housekeeper showed him upstairs, where Fred and his wife were in the dining room. He opened the door gently and sidled his face in. Fred, Abigail! Why, bless my soul! Who's that? It is I, your Uncle Scrooge. I've come to dinner. Will you let me in, Fred? He was at home in five minutes. Nothing could be heartier. Wonderful party, wonderful games, wonderful happiness. But Scrooge was early at the office next morning. If he could only be there first and catch Bob Cratchit coming late, and he did it. Bob was full 18 minutes and a half behind his time. His hat was off before he opened the door. He was on his stool in a jiffy, driving away with his pen as if he were trying to overtake nine o'clock. Hello. What do you mean by coming here at this time of day? I'm very sorry, sir. I'm behind my time. Yes, I think you are. Step this way, sir, if you please. It, it was only once a year, sir. It shall not be repeated. I was making rather merry yesterday, sir. Now, I'll tell you what, my friend. I'm not going to stand for this sort of thing any longer. And therefore, I am about to raise your salary. I beg your pardon, sir? A merry Christmas, Bob. A merrier Christmas, my good fellow, than I have given you for many a year. I'll raise your salary and endeavour to assist your family. We will discuss your affairs this very afternoon. But first, make up the fires and buy another coal scuttle, Bob Cratchit. Scrooge was better than his word. He did it all and infinitely more. And to Tiny Tim, who did not die, he was a second father. He became as good a friend, as good a master, and as good a man as the good old city knew. It was always said of him that he knew how to keep Christmas well if any man alive possessed the knowledge. May that truly be said of all of us. And so, as Tiny Tim observed, God bless us, everyone. Charles Dickens's A Christmas Carol. Star, A.J. King, Jez Hines, Matthew Fisher, Lisa Grace, Samuel Rush, Amanda Parker, Shaz Lancaster, Jennifer Baines Higgins, Isabel Rose Byrne, Daniel Middleton, Josh Flynn, Gavin Rand, Liz Keach, Reese Jones, Matthew Ford, Teddy Smith, Linda Bailey, Ben Wilson, Alison Lenahan, Ben Percival, Christopher Maxwell, and Terence Marshman Edwards. Adapted for audio by Terence Marshman Edwards, Matthew Ford and Matthew Fisher. Original score by Andrew Gallagher. Silent Night performed by Liz Keach. Edited by Emily Lawrence and Rhys Jones. Produced by Ben Wilson, Christopher Maxwell, Rhys Jones and Teddy Smith. Directed by Teddy Smith. Mm-hmm.